Well, like I mentioned today, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. We're in the middle of a lengthy series to the book of Hebrews, and we uh, kind of have fits and starts with it, but today we're in Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 14, and so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to see how Jesus' blood is better. Pray with me, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Father God, we thank you for this moment to to do what Christians have done for hundreds and even thousands of years of, of coming together, worshiping you, praising you for who you are, and also turning to your word so that we can know the way that we are to go, the way that we are to live. This is, and we confess this, this is the main way you communicate to us. So Lord, we need to be drawn back to the glories of the gospel. Lord, we invite your spirit to come. Spirit, we pray that you would fill this room in such a way to where you would do only the things that you can do, that you would bring faith where it's needed, to where you would convict of sin where it's needed, to where you would encourage those who are discouraged, that you would help us see the truths of the gospel in new and fresh ways. Lord, we're asking for joy. And Lord, we pray that you would bring that this morning. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been tempted to go back to the old ways? For some people, they were converted maybe as children. And maybe they sometimes have trouble thinking about, okay, what was life before Christ? But for other people, maybe they became a Christian when they were adult or when they were a student. And, and they maybe have a better picture of what it's like to not follow Christ in their lives. However, for all of us, we're all tempted to go back to those old ways, to, to live this life the way maybe we used to live it. But how does that temptation to go back typically happen? For most of us, we're tempted to go back to the old ways when pain comes about, right? Like think about those painful moments in your life. And we are experiencing, when we're experiencing something painful, we can wonder if living differently will lead to better results. Now, in some ways, that's a reasonable thought, right? Like that's in our normal lives and outside of kind of maybe uh, spiritual understanding of the gospel, that's the case. So, for example, if you're uh, one that drives too fast and then continues to get tickets, well, maybe if you changed your behavior, something would go better for you, right? But as we think about it with the gospel, maybe we can toy with that logic of saying, okay, maybe if we didn't follow Christ, then we wouldn't have these trials. For example, maybe when a a student chooses to do what her peers are not doing or to believe what her peers are not believing, then listen, that can sometimes lead to being ostracized or vilified for your faith, right? So following Christ can come with a cost. And so we can be tempted to abandon the faith. This is the type of temptation that was being experienced by the original readers of this letter from, uh, to the book that is now what we call the book of Hebrews. And most likely, they were facing some sort of social pressure to abandon their faith in the gospel. They were being ostracized. They were being vilified in some way. And there was this temptation to fall away. This is why I think Hebrews is such a relevant book for us. Like over and over we see throughout our society in this uh, evangelical Christianity thing, we see people deconstructing their faith and totally abandoning the gospel. They're tempted towards something else and they abandon the faith. But like it was for the original readers, that temptation is a lie. That temptation is not true. 
You see, if you return to the old ways, life is not better. It might be easier in some way, but it's not better. And the reason why it's not better is uh, some, uh, when you face sufferings and challenges, when you face pain, all of that will be compounded by the fact that you are not walking faithfully with the Lord. Listen, when, uh, and, and further, this is all made worse because when we abandon the faith, then, then God is, is open to disciplining us through those suffering. So that man who gives in to his sexual urges, and is, he's not ultimately happy, but he now faces the discipline of the Lord as well as loss of fellowship with the Lord. You see, as a result, you know, when people get cancer, when they lose a job, which everyone, you know, that can happen to anyone and everyone. But yet, if we've abandoned the faith, then all of those problems are compounded. But see, when you're walking faithfully with the Lord, when you're continuing to embrace it, even in its challenges, God gives you joy through those challenges, doesn't he? So don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that returning to the old ways will lead to happiness. Rather, Hebrews 9 teaches that better understanding of the new ways helps us, uh, helps us see how, how much better it is to believe those new ways. So the more we understand it, the more we can believe it and live it out. Hebrews 9, 1 to 14 is this comparison between the blood of the old covenant and the blood of the new covenant. And in that comparison, we're going to see that God dwells in a holy place. Therefore, atonement is required. However, we're going to see that Jesus's atonement is better. So as a result, Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 14 is going to teach us that we are to believe Jesus's blood is better. Look with me at these first five verses and we're going to see that God's dwelling is a holy place. Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 5. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the, sec- the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and, Abraham's, and, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail hebrews is notoriously difficult to interpret there's some textual challenges in the book at different point at different points this passage is one of the most difficult passages to interpret and the reason is is because there seems to be some sort of a distinction between exodus 20 leviticus 16 and then hebrews 9 and in Exodus 30 and in Leviticus 16, it says that the altar of incense was located outside of the Holy of Holies. However, here in Hebrews 9, it says that the altar of incense was located inside the Holy of Holies. So there isn't consensus on why this has happened, but there's a few theories that float around. The first one being, okay, this is just an error in the Bible. The Bible's filled with errors. Well, we shouldn't understand the Bible as God's word. We shouldn't understand it as inerrant, but it's just filled with errors. The problem is, is the Bible itself claims not only just to be inerrant, but it, it claims that it comes from the inside of God. It comes out from God. And we know that nothing inside of God is erroneous or untruthful. So we reject that understanding of it. Second, some people say this is probably some sort of uh, uh, textual problem. Most things that people claim are errors in the Bible 
are easily uh, addressed when you understand textual criticism. This science of, okay, there were these original autographs that nobody has, but then there's this science of kind of piecing together all these early fragments to really understand what God's word said in the original autogram, uh, autographs. For some of you, that is completely boring, but for some of my people, that's fascinating <laughs> stuff, and it's really cool stuff. But the reality is, is most of, uh, uh, most of those issues that you see even in Hebrews, they're really just a misinterpretation of the Greek version of the Hebrew text that he's using. Others have argued that maybe it was in the tabernacle that the altar was outside of the Holy of Holies, but then later in the temple, it was inside the Holy of Holies. I have a problem with that because on that table, the priests were to do daily things. They were to light certain candles and, and, and do a ministry on that table every single day. However, we know, and we'll see further, that the priests only, high priest only went into the Holy of Holies once per year. So how could he administer those things in the Holy of Holies daily if he was supposed to go in there once uh, per year? Um, I also have a hard time believing that the author of Hebrews is just kind of rushing past this issue. But in the end, the best I can say is that it's, poss- it's probably some sort of textual issue that maybe an early scribe wrote something down wrong and then it was, it was passed down throughout history. However, this issue, this textual issue, doesn't affect the main point of the passage. The point is that he's trying to make is, is that God dwells in a holy place. The repetition of words here in, those, in that section is holiness. We're try, he's trying to communicate that God dwells in a holy place. And in the Old Testament, there were all these specific instructions on how all this was to operate in the tabernacle and later in the temple. In in Leviticus 24, it talks about the lampstand and the table. The altar is talked about in Leviticus 16. And all of that uh, was leading up to this day of atonement and emphasizing the holiness of these artifacts that the temple and all the religious sacrificial structure are all about the holiness of God. The temple itself was this holy place. It was a sacred place. It was a set-apart place. It was a pure place from all the defilements of the world. That's the point of the temple, and that's the point of the holy of holies. And further, ultimately, what made the temple holy was the fact that it was the dwelling place of God. For example, if you've ever seen pictures of the Ark of the Covenant, he talks about these cherubim, these angels. And the Ark of the Covenant was gold on the outside. And it had these angels, this, uh, these golden structures of angels. And if you've seen the pictures, they're bowing down before the middle of the Ark, which they called the Shekinah glory, the, the mercy seat. This is where God dwelled. And the angels were they're covering their eyes because He's so holy. And they're worshiping because He is so holy. But right there, God dwelled. God was with His people. He was right there. All of these items communicate that the temple was a holy place and they further communicate that it was holy because it was the dwelling place of God. The fact that God instructs uh, uh, creation to worship him in this holy place, it it teaches us uh, something essential about the nature of God. You see, he is holy. It's not just the temple or these artifacts. God is holy. God is sacred. God is set apart. God is pure. God is sacred. God is without sin. This is a description uh, of who God is. God is the Holy One. He's the one who is set apart. And further, if you think about virtues, love and justice, these things, you can take all those to their perfect end, and that's what best describes God. God is perfectly loving. He's perfectly righteous. And you're probably thinking of Bible verses right now that describe the very essence of God. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. 
All of this points to the very nature and the essence of who God is. God is holy. And, and further, where God is, the sphere, if you, if you will, around God, that sphere is holy. So where God dwells, that sphere becomes holy. Like, like think about Jesus' life. Wherever he was walking around, it was better, wasn't it? Amen. Like forgiveness happened. Right. Healing happened. All these glorious things happen, and those are a picture of the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom is this place, this sphere, where everything operates according to God's will. It will be holy. It will be perfect. Sociologists uh, say that kind of the American religion, what people like really believe, is what they call moral therapeutic deism. You ever heard that phrase? It, it has a few tenets of what different, like the average American believes. But one of them is, is that the average American believes that good people go to heaven. Like if, if you're pretty good, you'll get into heaven. You know, that, that's just one of these basic tenets that every American believes, supposedly. But that doesn't jive with Hebrews 9, right? Like we're not talking about a God that is hmm, pretty good. And if you're hmm, pretty good, you'll get in. It's talking about something totally different here, isn't it? God doesn't allow sin in his presence. God is holy. He's perfectly holy. And he set apart this huge redemptive plan that preserves his holiness and then responds to our sinfulness. God is holy and his sphere is holy. To get into his presence requires you to be holy. And that's our problem. And the solution is, is atonement is required. Look at verses 6 to 10. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he, and he but once a year, and not, without taking, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So because God is so holy, reparation is required. God's wrath needed to be satisfied. Atonement needed to be made no one went into the holy of holies except for once a year when the priest went in to atone for the sins of god's people again in leviticus 16 it provides these instructions for the day of the atonement everything that was supposed to happen on that day and in verse 11 of leviticus 16 it explains that the high priest would would have an atoning sacrifice for his own sin before he could go into the presence of god then in verse 15 it explains that he would offer an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people so like the blood that was shed for Adam and Eve's sin, there was this blood that needed to be shed for the sins of God's people. The high priest would only go in once a year to atone. So it was through the bloody pain of death that atonement was made year after year after year after year on that day of atonement. However, the year after year after year reality of the day of atonement, it shows how it had a limited efficacy. It was insufficient in some way, right? Efficacy really means uh, to, perform, to perform a task to a satisfactory or an expected degree or an end. 
Efficacy is, is about if something was effective at producing the desired end. For example, we've had all this talk about vaccines, right? How effective is the vaccine? And, and we're given a number. Maybe it's 85%. Well, that means 15%. It's not effective, right? And so in a similar way, as you look at this, the efficacy of the Day of Atonement, it was limited to God's people for that year. And then the next year, you had to go do it again. So the atonement needed to be made year after year after year. And as a result, if someone wanted real access to dwell with the holy God, he had to make atonement continually. It was continually that this atonement had to be made. Therefore, uh, Hebrews 9, 6 to 11, it really highlights two points. Number one, because God is holy... We need atonement for our sins. And then number two, the old way of temples and priests and sacrifices and blood and atonement for the sins of God's people, all of that uh, was efficacious only to the next year. It was insufficient in that way. It was limited in that way. Another way of thinking this is those sacrifices were inadequate, weren't they? Let me stop here and maybe relate the struggle for the original hearers to our day today. So like we said, the writer of Hebrews, he's reminding us and he's reminding them that the, the, not to turn back to those old ways, right? He's showing how inadequate they were. Now, most likely, the readers of this original letter were Jewish. They were ethnically Jewish people. And, and, and they were people that we would call maybe completed Jews or Messianic Jews who had started now believing that Christ is the Messiah. He's this promised one. And even though they're ethnically Jewish, they're born again. They're followers of Christ. Now, there becomes some, most likely some cultural tensions there. Like, like maybe it was in the realm of their profession. Like maybe they, you know, uh, because they were now professing Christ, maybe they were losing clients. Like maybe there were people that didn't want to work with them anymore because they've abandoned the old ways. Maybe it had to do with, with family or friends. Like maybe because they followed Christ, the cost was they didn't get invited to the holiday party anymore. They, 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 they weren't included in different things. And listen, maybe it could have been this whole other realm. Like there's evidence that there was government persecution on them in those days. So maybe the cost for following Christ is there was actual government persecution on them in those days. And as a result, the temptation was to quit all this Jesus stuff and go back to the old ways. They were experiencing a cost to claiming the name of Christ. In some sense, their lives would have been easier if they had abandoned following Christ. Can those things happen today? Can that happen today where, where, there, where there's a cost to following Christ? Maybe it's a cost professionally. Maybe it's a cost with your friends or family. Maybe there's a, a moment where uh, you're having to face a vilification or being ostracized, even from a governmental level, that maybe the government is causing you to abandon your faith in Christ, abandon these ethical commitments uh, of the gospel. Maybe it's easier if we fell away. Have you ever been tempted like those first century completed Messianic Jews to go back to the old ways? In response to those temptations, what Hebrews 9 is telling us, it's saying that God is holy and he dwells in this holy place. And an atonement is required for that. But that atonement was insufficient. And the gospel provides something better. But Jesus' atonement is better. Look with me at verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is one of those but Jesus moments, right? But Jesus. We recognize God is holy, and only holiness is allowed in his presence. We recognize that we are not holy, and we have this problem of not being able to enter into his presence. We recognize the Old Testament priesthood and all that sacrificial system. It it, it had this atonement process, but we recognize it was insufficient. And we recognize it was not an eternal solution to the problem, but Jesus. In verse 11, it says, he brought good things. He triumphantly uh, trumpeted in a better way. His blood was was, was better. It was a better blood than bulls and goats. Therefore, his atoning sacrifice was better. Verse 13, it has this explanatory four. And it gives all these reasons of why Jesus' atoning sacrifice was better. Let's look at six ways that Jesus' atonement is better. First, Jesus' atonement was better because it was in a better place, verse 11. Verse 11 says that his atonement took place, quote, through the greater and more perfect tent. You see, it wasn't done in this human-made temple or tabernacle. The temple was destroyed by humans in 70 AD and it's never been rebuilt. His atoning sacrifice, it wasn't done in that human-made place. His atonement was done in the heavens. His his atonement was was done in this, this cosmic court system, if you will. You see, we're not talking about human religion. We're talking about cosmic justice. When Jesus went into to do his atonement, His sacrifice, it it went to this higher place. It went into the presence of God himself. It satisfied God himself. The place of his atonement was more glorious, and that's why it's better. Therefore, second, Jesus' atonement was better because it was once for all. Verse 12. The old way was to make repeated atonements. The day of atonement, year after year after year. Further, the old way was that those atonements were only effective for those outer ceremonial sins, right? Rather, Jesus' blood, it was so perfect, it was so glorious, it was so holy that his sacrifice was made once for all. One time for all of those sins. Not just those outer ceremonial sins, but those inside sins. And, And it was once for all, meaning there was an eternal nature to that work. Think of it this way. If you live for decades, you know, from now, you're going to be committing sins for decades, right? As you sit right now, those sins that maybe you commit decades from now, they are covered by the blood of Christ. Isn't that glorious? You, you, You don't even know where they are yet. They're not even on your radar yet. But you're going to probably commit sins decades from now. And all of it is covered. And it's not just covered in the moment. The consequences... The eternal consequences are covered for eternity. Isn't that glorious? Once for all. Now this is true because third, Jesus' atonement was better because Jesus' blood was better. 1 John 1.17 says, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You see, 
The blood of animals cannot accomplish that degree of cleansing. At, at some level, it cleanses. But no other atonement is good enough because no other blood is good enough. You see, no other means of forgiveness or peace or righteousness is good enough. No other blood is good enough. It cleanses us in the most perfect of way. It completely cleanses us. Isn't that glorious? His blood is better. And as a result, fourth, Jesus' atonement is better because it secures eternal redemption. Yeah. We, we had a debt that needed to be paid for. We, we needed to be bought back. We, we needed, uh, we needed uh, this eternal redemption. Jesus obtains eternally His church with His own blood, which uh, Acts 20, 28. He secures us through His atonement. So we're secure in His grip. He holds, he holds us tight. His blood secures us in. Nothing can, uh, nothing can get us out of His grip as a, as a result of His atonement. We, have this, uh, we don't have this temporary security. We have an eternal security. This security lasts forever. And it's all because of His sacrifice. It's nothing that we've done. It's what He's done. Martin Luther uh, talked about an alien righteousness. This righteousness comes from the outside, not from the inside. It's not you conjuring up out of your own moral strength the opportunity to stand before the holy God. It's a righteousness that he gives you from the outside. It's an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. He puts you in a new category based upon his righteousness. It holds us secure for all sins and all trials and all temptations forever. Fifth, Jesus' atonement is better because it purifies our conscience, verse 14. It didn't just address those outside issues, but it addresses those inside issues. It addresses those thoughts, those feelings. Jesus always cuts to the heart, doesn't he? When you read in the New Testament, he's always interested not just in murder, but in anger. He's always cutting to the heart, isn't he? And hear me, his atonement, it addresses all of those things. It, It doesn't just atone for the sinful behaviors like a cuss word or striking someone. It cuts to the heart, and it atones for those angry hearts and those self-entitled beliefs. Jesus says in Mark 7, 14, There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So Jesus cleanses the inside. He gets inside the mind and the heart. He cleans the conscience. He purifies our hearts. So finally, sixth, Jesus' atonement is better. Because as a result of these other five reasons, we're enabled to serve the living God. Verse 14. Martin Luther said it this way, that Jesus' atonement, that through Jesus' atonement, that man is not bitten by, by the recollection of his sins and is not disquieted by the fear of future punishment. As a result, we are set free. Amen. This is the freedom of the gospel. We're set free. Those church officers, those, those uh, threats of being burned at the stake. What was Luther's response? Here I stand. He had something better. He wasn't, he wasn't scared by the, by the threats of the world. He was free to serve the living God. We're, we're set free to serve God with abandon and boldness and passion. We, we can come before Him with confidence. We can have this intimate relationship with him no matter what comes our way, no matter what trial, no matter what struggle. We can come, we can, we can come right up to him with great confidence in him because of what he's done. That secure relationship 
it then launches us into service. We now have this joy that is filled in ministry because we've been set free to follow Him. And it's all based on the security of His atoning sacrifice for us. In summary, Hebrews 9, 1-14 makes clear that Jesus' atonement is better than the old ways. When we're tempted, we're to remember His ways are better. We, we might have heard these truths before. However, we never move past being reminded of them, don't we? Yeah. We never move past that. We need it day in and day out. We need to be reminded each and every week. We need to hear it again because we need to believe it again. And practically, throughout our lives, we'll be tempted to return to the old ways. Therefore, we need to hear it again and again and again and again. Amen. And isn't that a joyous exercise? Yes. Isn't that where our joy is found? To be reminded again of the glories of the gospel. What tempts you away from believing His atonement is better? Are there old ways or old lies that tempt you away? Like the original readers are these, uh, of these words, is following Christ costing you something? Are you tempted to abandon all this, believing that my life would be easier? Maybe it would be easier, but it certainly wouldn't be better. Are you tempted to believe those old lies? Has faithfulness gotten difficult for you? Are you tempted to throw in the towel and just to give yourself over to your fleshly desires? Are you ever tempted to believe that abandoning all this and, and giving in is going, to make you, uh, is going to make you happier? Are you ever experiencing those temptations? Is it costing you something? You might be politely sitting here today thinking, atonement is so unnecessary. This sounds like weird Old Testament stuff. Atonement. Who needs atonement? Well, hear me, you don't operate that way in, in your normal everyday life, right? Maybe this is a goofy example, but think about if a, if a guy uh, loans his car to a friend, and then that guy, when he's driving a car around, runs over somebody's mailbox. Somebody's got to pay an atonement, don't they? Somebody's got to pay to make that thing right. Like atonement just means, you know, uh, making satisfaction for wrong committed so everything can be whole again, right? Now listen, somebody's going to pay. Maybe it's going to be the owner of the car. Maybe it's going to be the driver. Maybe it's going to be the owner of the mailbox. Maybe it's going to be the insurance company. But somebody's going to pay for that mailbox, right? That's how we operate in life. Satisfaction has to be made to make things whole again. So if you think atonement is some sort of silly Old Testament idea, I promise you, you don't operate in your life that way. And hear me, if that's true for some mundane brokenness in this world, isn't it true for the cosmic brokenness of the world? The big religious eternal things, friends, atonement is necessary. Yeah. Hebrews 9 explains that if you believe the old ways are better, then you're believing a lie. Yeah. Jesus' atonement is so much better. It accomplishes so much more, and it opens the door to so many more joys. His atonement is necessary, and when we're tempted to fall back to the old ways, we need to believe the good news again and again and again. We need to run through that list of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. We need to be reminded of those glorious gospel truths again. We were purchased from, and we were purchased for something. We need to remember again how He cleaned us, and He, uh, uh, and he remade us. We need to believe again, and His atonement is better than anything or any other attempts to be made right with God. Amen. Any other attempts to find peace or happiness or cleanliness or righteousness, they all fail in the face of Jesus' atonement. Right. Believe again that His atonement is better and, and when you're tempted to fall away. 
Years ago, a, a criminal was converted um, in a prison Bible study. He'd, he'd been a drug addict, he'd been a drug dealer, and he'd been abuser, a physical abuser of his wife. Uh, what, for him, drugs started as just kind of part of the party lifestyle. He just wanted to have fun. It went from drinking to some drugs and the harder drugs. And what happened to his story was what happens to so many others. You know, a drug keeps us from maturing is really what happens. So for, in his friend group, his, his buddies and his party buddies, where they kind of abandoned all that silliness and, and moved on to more mature things, he, he just remained stuck there. And as a result, he couldn't get a job and all these different trials came into his life. And so he ended up selling drugs just to make ends meet. His girlfriend got pregnant, so they decided to get married. It was all built on sandy ground. And for both of them, their frustrations with life, it just regularly erupted into these heated arguments. And, and in fact, one night, one of those arguments turned violent. They lived in an apartment complex, and their neighbors would hear these arguments. And finally, one night, it, it was clear he was physically hurting her. So one of the neighbors did what he should have done. He called the police. The police came, and in the apartment, they found the illegal drugs. They saw the evidence of his violence, and so they hauled him off to jail. And he served this long stint in jail. However, a pastor came in every week, and he led this Bible study in this man's jail. The criminal thought, okay, what do I have to lose? And he started attending the Bible study. He heard about Jesus, church, Christmas, Easter, whatever. But he started going, and he really heard the gospel. This pastor just kind of faithfully opened to God's word. He answered questions for them. And, and this guy, his heart was just stirred. And he, he began asking the pastor these questions. He, he didn't immediately believe. He was kind of skeptical at first. But that hound of heaven kept pursuing him. He kept asking questions. He kept going. And finally, one night, after the end of the Bible study, this pastor uh, led him into this prayer of repentance of sin and confession in Christ. The man was converted. He was born again. And maybe as you think back at that moment in your life, Initially, for this guy, he experienced an overwhelming joy in the Lord. He experienced so many good things. He, he, he felt free like never before. He felt loved and accepted like never before in his life. He desired to pursue God in ways that didn't even make sense to him. It, it sounded, sounded silly to him, but he wanted to live this way. He started sharing the gospel with inmates. He, he sought forgiveness from his wife. He helped lead the Bible study. However, as time went by, a couple of things happened. Number one, the devil in the flesh began bringing up all those accusations. You aren't good enough. You aren't really clean. You aren't really forgiven. He doesn't really love you unconditionally. You're not a beloved, adopted child of God. You're a druggie. You're a drug dealer. You're a wife beater. Second, another thing happened. Following Christ began to cost him something. You see, his wife mocked him. For all this the the different inmates in in his prison they, they sniffed weakness in that christianity and they attempted to take advantage of him knowing that he wouldn't retaliate further he had kind of a strange incident where he, he if he would tell what we would consider like a white lie then it could reduce his sentence and he could get out earlier but he chose to remain truthful finally after one of those bible studies he broke down with his pastor it was just getting too hard and this faithful pastor listened, he prayed with him, but he took him back to all those glorious gospel truths. He took him back to um, all those things that, that highlight how life with Jesus is better. He started going down that list and repeating those Bible verses with him. He reminded him of his confession. He went back to those deep, profound truths. 
He reminded him of how Jesus' atoning work was better than the old life. When he wanted to slip away, he, he reminded of him how all those false accusations, all those promises, they're all a lie. Here's the truth of the gospel. This faithful pastor left that atoned for sinner with an old hymn. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, widen His blood most precious till not a stain remains. Friends, when you're tempted to fall away, when those accusations begin to fly, when you're counting the costs, believe Jesus' blood is better. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for this reminder. Thank You for this deep dive into the glories of the gospel because each and every one of us need to be reminded afresh day in and day out of the goodness of your atoning work nothing else atones like you atone nothing else is eternal once for all all sins for all time nothing else cleanses nothing else brings peace with you nothing else redeems like your atoning sacrifice Lord, all the greatest things of life come from that moment when you died for us. Lord, we thank you for what you've accomplished for us. And when we're tempted to fall away, I pray that we would go back to those glorious gospel truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray.